What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. What's up, podcast listeners? This is Matt Baxter on the Matt Baxter Show. We are so, so, so excited to have you. On this episode, I'm hanging out with Daniela Young. This was a four-hour bender. I was on her podcast. She was on my podcast. I was blown away just by the chance to get to spend some time with her. She has one of the craziest life stories I've ever heard. Grew up in the child of God cult, bumped into becoming an army captain, and then all of a sudden is an HR tech and culture talks, chats, combine that all into one. But she all of a sudden has just one of the craziest life stories from cult to culture, and she's just doing some fantastic things impacting lives. So if you're looking for a bit of an out there story by an amazing person who is impacting lives, this podcast is for you. Thanks again, Daniela, for being a guest on the Matt Baxter Show. Well, Daniela, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I know a little bit because I have been on your podcast, which I'm super stoked for, and it was a lot of fun. And also we've chatted a little bit, but from the outside looking in, you have this crazy wild life story. So would you mind just giving the listeners a little bit of attitude around that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I do have, you know, quite often it's actually fun for me now and I tell people I'm working on a memoir and people just look at me. With, with crazy eyebrows because I'm in my early 30s and they're like, oh, what are you writing about, little girl? And I'm like, no, no, trust me. Um, it's, a, it's quite the story. So I was born and raised, and in fact, multiple, multiple generations of my family were exclusively involved in a religious cult. 
called The Children of God. It's getting a bit of notoriety on Netflix right now. You can go check it out in their explained, Netflix explained episode on cults. Um, but essentially, it was this group of, you know, hippies in the late 60s that were all searching for something. And they decided that they wanted to search for, you know, Jesus and a life of faith and this connection and this brotherhood that everyone was sort of searching for at that time, um, culturally. And they decided to follow this leader and this man who developed himself into the prophet of God. Um, and eventually became sort of the unquestioning leader of this group that was about 10,000 people strong, lasted for 50 years, and over the course of 50 years, you know, claimed about 100,000 people that would give up their life, give up their money, join these communes. And it essentially, not surprisingly, um, evolved into being like really, really bad stuff, right? So one of the largest groups in the world to ever promote religious prostitution, um, a lot of actual doctrines around pedophilia and incest and child marriages and sort of all of the bad things that you never want to hear about, you never want to talk about, and everyone also believes could never happen to them. So that was my early life, right? So 15 years, my mom born and raised in it too, only 15 years older than me. So uh, listeners can probably imagine that going on 15, what was going to be starting to be expected of me um, was, you know, producing babies and being a, another good cult member. And I, you know, fortunately, because of who my mom was and uh, circumstances at the time got the opportunity to get away. Um, sort of combination of getting kicked out and just getting away. <laughs> and ended up in Texas with, which, you know, I'm an American citizen, but is a country I had never really lived in. Um, with zero dollars and had to, you know, sort of kick my life into into gear. And the only thing I knew was that like I was going to college. So can we can we pause real quick on that? Because I want absolutely. So <laughs> my first question on the, the cult scene is more like what was day to day life of that? And and not to get into like any of the bad stuff, but what was like did you have a job? Did you have a role? Was there a, like, what, what, what was that like from the, the inside? Yeah. So the way I describe um, life in the cult is first of all, for children, uh, basically no spontaneous moments of joy. Okay. So very, just think very, very institutionalized, you know, from the, from the youngest, from birth, you're living in dorms, you're being taken care of by people that are not your parents. I would, um, until I was 10 years old, I saw my parents for one hour a day and then one, one full day on the weekends. Um, and other than that, I was in, you know, essentially growing up in a group home. Um, but, you know, my parents were on site somewhere um, and then run very religiously um, doctrines. And then, yes, it was, you know, in theory, we were all homeschooled, which I refer to in my book as no schooled. Um, and it was essentially, you know, school is evil. School is how they indoctrinate you. And we're going to keep you all here. Um, there was a lot of focus on early childhood education. You know, we could all read 
literally the King James version of the Bible by the time we were like three or five. Um, and that I think actually turned into an organizational, like this was good for them, right? Because children that seem really smart um, and really verbal don't seem like they're brainwashed and abused. Um, and this ended up like serving them very well during the 80s and 90s when there was a lot of police raids and uh, court uh, hearings and all of this stuff trying to From trying to get macro events you can sort there. of see how they gain some traction because of things like that going on that makes sense yes exactly um but you know and yeah from a you know the the very youngest of ages it was you know children were a workforce i mean we were families of you know average of 12 to probably 18 children i have 24 siblings from different combinations and much like it was in the late 1800s like you had more children to put them to work right. for you um and when also this idea of when a village is raising your children it's not hard to just sort of pop out a bunch of babies and have them all taken care of as a group um, yeah, so that was daily life and there was a lot of, um, you know, singing and dancing on the streets to raise money. There was a lot of quote unquote missionary work. Um, that was how we survived as in go, you know, volunteer at an orphanage and then go get a bunch of people to donate money to your, to your communes and to your missionary group because you have these pictures of you at an orphanage. Um, so almost kind of an an organized front of charity work for what this what this cult actually was um and then of course there was just you know lots and lots of physical sexual abuse abuse by religion denial of education you know and all of that stuff sort of really comes to play in how we were socialized and the hardest thing to kind of express to people is how when you're that controlled, like we basically knew there was the children of God and then there was everyone else and we were right and they were wrong. And so it's not like even, you know, American kids that grow up in very religious households, they still know that there are other people that they interact with that have sort of different beliefs and run their lives in different ways. And we didn't have that. Like we yeah. only knew us. So, so you, you got out of that environment, but at the time and like, feel free to not talk about this if you're not comfortable with it, but like between you and your mom, like, did you feel that it was wrong? Was it just like, I want to go s explore other things in the world? Was it something that like you, you knew, like, I guess what was the, not the defining moment, but what was like kind of the internal feeling of this is not where I'm supposed to be. How, wh when did that light bulb go off or how did that come to be? Or was that there all along, I guess? Yeah. So there was a very specific moment of ideology for me, um, which I kind of describe as when the crack in the brainwashing happened. And I've actually written an article about this so people can read it on narratively.com. Yeah. We'll connect um, it to the, we'll connect it to the podcast afterwards. But it was on 9-11. Right. So my experience of 9-11 um, and I was randomly happened to be in the United States when this happened. Um, we were kind of on a on a trip in between two third world countries and we were in the U.S. and 9-11 happened. And I was first of all, this was the first time I had ever seen live news on TV. And I was surrounded by cheering. Right. Like folks that were happy because this is God's punishment on America, which is evil. This is the beginning of the end time, which we've all been promised. 
Um, and, you know, by the way, on the thread of talking about what our lives were like growing up, we didn't go to school and we trained all the time to be martyrs to the Antichrist in the end time. And we were all basically taught our whole lives that we were going to die violent deaths before the age of 25. Right. So that is, uh, yeah, that I'm was 25 fun. right now. So <laughs> yeah, what a really fun thing. I've got six months um, to make sure we're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, sorry, I kind of forgot where we were going with that. Oh yeah. So the, and the crack and the brainwashing for me was kind of, you know, it's hard to describe how normal that seems when that's all you know. Right. right. Um, but because I think, I mean, and literal crack, like the TV on outside worlds coming into our commune. Um, and I heard things like, you know, terrorists. I didn't know what terrorists were and being referred to as religious extremists. And I had this kind of, you know, I don't think I quite put it into concept the way I do now, but I had this very real feeling of this isn't right, this isn't God, and we might be religious extremists. Hmm. And that was kind of when things started to shift for me. Now, in reality, less than two years later, when I did end up leaving, it was more just like, I'm done, I'm out of here, I want to be a normal teen, I really want to go to high school, like my my big bad evil rebellion was like saying that I wanted to go to high school. Yeah. That's not that extreme. <laughs> so, uh, I get, was your mom supportive of that? Um, she, interestingly enough, yes. Um, not the way that normal people would think of as supportive, Sure. you know, as in like, I was still kicked out. I mean, at 15, like, every everything that i knew was over and you know my parents dropped me off in texas but had no money to give me had no help to give me and i wasn't really allowed to actually talk to them or have much of a relationship with them for several years um and like when at 19 when i wanted to go back and visit my mom had to ask the commune for permission right for me to like visit my family but she was supportive in the way that, so two really important things she did in my life. One was literally at three years old when she was teaching me to read, she taught me this concept that the only thing that you actually need from anyone in life is for someone to teach you to read. And everything else, if you have the drive, you can teach yourself. Hmm. Um, and so, and that, you know, looking back on that now, that's actually a very like controversial opinion to be teaching your child in a world where, I mean, we were literally only allowed to read the King James Bible and the 300,000 pages of garbage that this prophet of God wrote. Yeah. Um, so very, you know, intense. And that always kind of stayed with me um, later as we get into talking about like where my drive comes from and my ideas that I can never fail. Um, but then at the time, actually, so when I was 15 and when I was, you know, trying to get away, getting kicked out, all of this stuff, um, and I was sort of, I sort of launched this year-long teenage rebellion to essentially, like, get kicked out to make my life easier. And, but then, you know, it was coming down to the wire, and I was scared, you know, I didn't know anything about America, about life, about literally anything. And all of a sudden, everything I'd ever known was going to be gone. And I was scared and I was questioning about whether I should just stay and do the whole process of recommitting and becoming a new disciple and all of these punishment things they wanted me to do. 
And my mom took me out on a walk, like far away from everyone and was like, look, we found a place for you, just go. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I describe that now as like, she, you know, also had never known anything. At this point, she's 30 years old. She has seven children. Um, She has, she does not get actually the strength to leave for another almost 10 years, but she was able to give me like that little tiny nudge that I needed to just like get, get gone. And so about a really, really rough decade followed for me, but you know, I'm really glad that, you know, I didn't stay in long enough to have my own kid, to have, you know, more, more adult levels of involvement in all of that. Yeah. So walk me through. Uh, so I know, I know the, at least from the outside, the next major milestone is the military, but what led up to, uh, leaving to the military background. So what happened in between that? Yeah. So, all right. So I'm in Houston, Texas and I bring my, you know, my U S passport, my social security card, which is the only documentation that I have, like no medical records, no school records, nothing. And I go to enroll in high school and they literally tell me, well, we can't enroll you cause you don't exist. But if we don't see proof that you're enrolled somewhere in five days, we have to call the cops. So that was a really fun, you know, at 15, I had to go all the way up to the, I think, state. And I think, and I think business stress is a problem. That's a different <laughs> Yeah, I had to go all the way up to the kind of the state level and be like, not only do I need you to enroll me, I need you to pay for all these classes so I can catch up. Um, and it was just kind of being like, look, I just want to go to school. I just want to go to school. I just want to go to school. And I was finally able to enroll. Real quick, I I should have asked this earlier. Why did, why was school the, like, if you didn't know the value of education, why was school the thing in your mind that was like, that's all I need right now? Oh yeah. Kind of funny. So when I was like a five and six year old kid, you know, um, I have this very dynamic personality. I love to ask questions. I never take anything on faith. So I was always in trouble. Um, but I was always being told sort of offhandedly like, Oh, you should be a lawyer when you grow up. And I have no idea why people would say that to me because in that world, there was no, nothing other than you will be a missionary for God in the children of God. Um, but people would say that to me, like I was a lawyerly little kid. Um, and so in my head for a very long time, I was like, I need to be a lawyer. And in order to be a lawyer, I'm going to, um, I got to go to college, you know? Um, so that was, and I also just think like, there's no ends to what children that want an education will do to get an education when they've been denied an education Um, there's a really good book right now called educated. That's kind of about this Mormon isolationist family. And she, gets away gets a phd like all this stuff um i uh i this is making making light of a not light situation but my parents at least used to tell me that they would walk to school up hills both ways in order to get to school. <laughs> that's that's the dramatic of how, how how important education is and how important people find it so yeah anyways <laughs> yeah when you i mean try to control people's ideas and their idea people like ain't gonna they, work <laughs> they both fight back pretty hard so oh, that yeah. so that oh, was yeah. me And so in, you know, and, and to me, it was like, well, I have to go to high school because that's what, that's how you get into college. Um, and it was actually funny. I didn't even realize that college was an option in the U S like, I thought like you just like, it was a requirement. Like you graduated high school and went to college. 
Um, which I think like to this day, I'm like, I ended up going to college because no one told me it was supposed to be difficult <laughs> to get into college. Um, and of course, I also got lucky and had so many great people along the way. And in my senior year of high school, when I didn't know how I was going to pay and I was planning to join the Marines um, just to get money for college. And we had to write this college entrance essay and the prompt was, what makes you different? And I remember sitting there going, hmm, there's too many things to write about. And so I wrote this one page essay called I Was Raised in a Cult, which was also the first time I ever out loud publicly sort of admitted that it was a cult um, and ended up winning, you know, basically every essay competition scholarship that anyone ever applied to. And so got kind of this like package deal and was like, woohoo, going to college. Uh, this is a, I don't mean this as harshly as it's going to sound, but like socially, were you weird? Like, like, <laughs> not, like, and I mean that as politely as I can, but like, would people on the outside, like, would you have known that you were from the outside perspective came from non-traditional background or would you say like, Oh I'll my God! Question, leave it there. No, no, yes. <laughs> so weird, and we'll definitely even get more into this with one of your your future questions. But so my um, what I was going to say before was I will never forget like my first day of high school. I'm handed a schedule, and I'm just sent off to go to school. And there's four thousand students in my high school, and I'm standing there, and I'm like trying to find where I'm going, and I hear these two people having a conversation that like today I would just be like they were just debating something like they were just going back and forth using logical arguments to talk about something and I was immediately hit with like you know I always used to say oh I'm not from here I'm from Brazil uh, which is where I spent most of my life growing up and I was like I'm not from another country I'm from another planet and that was a very weird moment for me you know and we we did of course have this consciousness that we were different from everyone else because we were God's special army and like we were the best 10,000 people in the world. We were the only ones guaranteed to go to heaven, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely always, um, you know, I say today that no one ever had to teach me to believe in myself. Like I was always like, well, of course I'm going to be the best. Like I'm going to just go do this. So that's kind of an interesting point you make because you earlier said that uh, you don't necessarily trust things by faith, but yet I, I appreciate the self-confidence and faith in yourself. As well, <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, the whole faith thing I think is a, is a long discussion, but yeah. for Podcast sure, for I time. mean, I was, and I was very socially weird and I continued to be very socially weird from about 15 to 25, which are the years that I, you know, kind of put my head down and got through college as the valedictorian and commissioned into the military and became like literally within 10 years, I was a captain in the army and I had made some history for women and I had done all of these things we can talk about. Meanwhile, so socially awkward, like can't understand why I can't make friends to the point that I am seriously thinking about taking my own life like over and over again throughout the entire decade. So that, um, that decade was from 15 to 25. Is that what you said? That would be. Yeah. The... Yeah. Pretty much. Those are not easy years as it is <laughs> to add that element anyways to it. So 
let's sort of piece that out a little bit. So you graduated college. Uh, this is also a dumb question. Were you on like a normal age trajectory? Were you older or were you younger? Like when, how old were you when you graduated high school? No, so I graduated high school at 18. I was on a normal, basically I enrolled as a freshman and had to do four years and two. Okay. Um, which yeah, was a casual, co combination casually. of squishing everything together and the fact that high school is not really that hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I went to college normal, normal time. So graduated right, you know, literally days after I turned 22 and was, you know, got to go to a study abroad in Germany, which was really cool and was literally graduating with a honors degree in English in the middle of 2009, which if people do not remember, was one of the worst financial crises in history. And, you know, I felt like I had this like greater sense of like being an American and what it means to live out the American dream. And I felt so lucky. I was like, I won the lottery of birth that I was an American citizen born abroad. And I was able, literally nothing else about me being American was able to come back here and build my life and decided that I would commission into the army. Now, looking back at it, I think that I, you know, I went from one organizational structure, which was the cult, into schools, which are also organizational with organizations with structure. You know, someone is telling you where to go and what to do next. You're handed a schedule the first day and said, go. <laughs> yes. And then yeah. I don't think I would have had any idea how to like then proceed with life um like once i was handed a college degree and just said go um and so i found another organization that continued to grow me and guide me so what age were you when you first joined the military so i was 22 um i did this what they call like direct commissioning program which is to basically say anyone out of wherever with a college degree like american citizen with a college degree can just become an officer and there's a program it's like you go to nine weeks of basic training and then you go to 12 weeks of officer school and congratulations five months later you are you know the army's newest second lieutenant um, which I, um, is a management I, level position i was about to say i should have said this to to begin thank you for your service by the way thank you for thanking me for my service <laughs> <That's great. laughs> um people so, don't do that with women as much as you would think so yeah well but it's, we appreciate it absolutely it's it and i do as well so it's it's good but so walk me through so you went through um like was the the structure of joining the military as a female as a former culture to hustling throughout high school like was joining the military a difficult process a simple process a smooth process what was that sort of onboarding before you really yeah what was that onboarding process like yeah so basic training was very interesting to me first of all i just want to say i love that you call it onboarding because i think that in any of these cultures right what do we hear about the military like oh you've got that camaraderie you've got that immediate i mean i can meet a veteran anywhere in the world and we're immediately best friends right but it's because we have a super intensive essentially it takes you six months to become a soldier no matter you know, what path you, know, you take yeah, exactly you know exactly what you've been through you have this very very intensive onboarding process right it's why fraternities did hazing it's why you know like these these really you know become a doctor you've got to go through it seriously you know um 
And so I, when I first got to basic training, oh my God, I was literally standing there and there's this scene that they do where you have to take this 50 pound duffel bag and you have to hold it above your head for like up to three hours, right? It's physically impossible. Um, it's mentally impossible. And it's basically like, this is the time when either you break or you don't. Um, and which is also interesting and in, to explain how cults work, right? Um, once you're a member of the group, now you don't tend to to balk at things anymore. But I was literally, so I'm standing there and I'm holding this duffel bag above my head. And of course it's raining and I'm like, oh my God, I think I just joined another cult. <laughs> like literally I was like, yeah, so this is interesting. And, you know, interestingly enough to me, and today I always say, like, I think people need to kind of be able to suspend their, their internal feelings of like good or bad in order to just really sort of understand. And when you boil it down to the basics, what basic training is, it's taking normal individual humans and training them to act in completely not normal human ways. Normal humans, when they hear shooting, they run the opposite direction. Now we want to train you to run towards the shooting. And so we need to take you, we need to break you down, and we need to rebuild you. And it's programming. It is mental programming. It is brainwashing. It's whatever you want to call it. And by saying that, I'm not, even by saying like cult or brainwashing, I'm not saying like, oh, it's evil. I'm just saying like, this is, this is the organizational structure of how that works. Um, and I do think that for me, because I went through such a process to sort of unbrainwash myself and re-socialize myself into normal society, I was able to kind of like be a leader in the army for six years and in many ways keep a lot of my, my humanity and my individuality a lot more because I can understand how this works. You know, I can understand that I'm going to war on behalf of America and I'm hunting, a big part of my job is essentially hunting terrorists that are trying to kill Americans. However, I don't believe that, you know, Afghan lives or even terrorist lives are inherently worth less than Americans. Um, you know, so I feel like I've been able to kind of hang on to some of that because of that, my awareness of how that programming works. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to ask these two questions as one, and I'm going to let you decide if you want to answer them differently or separately. Okay. Okay. Question number one is what is the most difficult part about the military? Question number two is what is the most difficult part of the military as a female? And I don't know <laughs> if those are the same answers or not. So I'll let you mainly because I'm not a female. So, and I haven't been in the military, so I'll let you guide that however you prefer. Yeah. So, I mean, I would probably say that the most difficult part for me about the military was being a woman. Um, <laughs> for sure. You know, I, when I joined in 2009, I literally, you know, obviously hadn't been living in America that long. I literally had no idea that it was still legal in the military to be like, you cannot hold this job because you are a woman. And I was shocked. Um, like I, I couldn't, you could not convince me that in 2009, it was legal in America to do that. And it was very much from the beginning, you know, in basic training, they would say to you, you know, if you're a, um, is, is language okay on this podcast? They would say to you, you know, you're either a bitch, a slut or a dyke. If you're a woman in the military, like those are your roles. Um, the implication being like, you need to be as hard as nails, bitch, if you want to have a successful career. 
um, and, you know, so much pressure on women. Uh, you know, I describe it today, like, so I'm married to a veteran also. Um, my husband and I actually met on my second tour to Afghanistan. But like he, if he does something wrong, he's just Tom Young. And he's just in trouble for doing what he did wrong. Um, or if he stands out, he's just Tom Young. Um, if I do something wrong, this is why women shouldn't be in the military, right? So in people's minds, I represent all female soldiers. So it's an overall generalization of uh, not just you, but representing all women who serve. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, it's a problem that any kind of minority group always has, right? It's that the majority tends to think of them as the representative of their entire group, right? Whether that's racial or gender or whatever it is, you know, if you're the one gay person at work, you represent the entire LGBTQ yeah. community to the rest of everyone. And it's a tremendous amount of pressure, right? So for women, it was literally, and still is in many ways in military, like you have to work twice as hard for half as much. And then because of the way that the military is structured um, with, with laws about who you can and can't associate with based on different ranks, and the fact that at the time I was in, you know, the military is only 11% women, um, it was very lonely. And I think being like to this day, being a female officer is just very, very lonely. Um, there's a lot of you know, we, I mean, we don't need to get into it completely, but a lot of the, the rape culture and the sexual harassment and sexual assault stuff is, is still going on. It's still very much a problem and was a lot more of a problem in, you know, 2011, the years that I am like going to war yeah. and that, yeah, all of it was just very hard. I mean, the, the put on a uniform and run around and do cool stuff was was fun like, that was all fun um like yeah there's hard days but you know sort of the physical and mental stuff was pretty fun uh, most of the stuff about being a woman was really really hard and then of course like not to forget like having people that you see as your brothers and sisters in arms get killed in war like that's also very hard yeah um so take the extremes of the best and worst things in the military. How do those compare and contrast to the extremes of the call for the best and worst of that? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of similarities, I would say, is that, you know, um, like I say all the time, cults do things right. You know, there's reasons people join the cult and stay in the cult. And that is you have this community, you have this brotherhood, you have this shared ideology, you have a purpose and a sense of, you know, a mission in your life. I mean, I have, you know, most people have a couple of siblings that can relate to like what life was like growing up for them. I've got 5,000 kids that were second and third generation members of this cult and can relate exactly, you know, we all read the same books, our parents did the same things, like we follow the same people. So it's literally like having 5,000 siblings. Um, and we fight a lot, but we also can support each other a lot. So like, you know, that would be kind of the positive. And then the negatives, or, you know, I speak three languages, I've had these really cool experiences. The negatives was, of course, you know, the abuse, the trauma, the, you know, assault, and all of that. And from my experience in the military, if you put it in those views, very, very similar, right? The military, you get this mission, you get the service, literally, I was like, I can try to make 
you know, 40,000 as a teacher, or I can join the military for three years and get this resume that nobody else gets. You know, 22 year old lieutenants are given a commission from the president and 60 people, $3 million of equipment to manage. And like, you know, the resume you can write when you get out of the military is insane. The amount of leadership development you get, sort of that ideology, you know, all of that is really cool. Of course, the, the camaraderie, the lifelong camaraderie that you have with other veterans, um, those are all really cool. And then the downsides are the extreme ideology, the, you know, someone has complete control over your life and you can't be anywhere you want. You have to, you have to do whatever they tell you to do. Um, and there's a reason why so many soldiers take their own lives like when they're at war, because like when you are struggling in your current position, you can't just change your life. You can't just go anywhere else. Like you have to stay there. And that's really, really hard to deal with. And you know, the same things, right? Abuse, trauma, assault, all of that, like becomes the very, very downsides of the military and being a woman in the military. Yeah. So I, I read a, uh, it was like a short story that I'm going to generalize it, but basically it was this young girl uh, who had a brother and the father was uh, pretty hard on her and she went out and graduated high school and she came back and showed her dad the diploma and he said, I wish you were a man. And then she went out and got a job and did really, really well and came back and said, I wish you were a man. And then she went out, got married, had kids, presented the kids to the dad. He came back and she ultimately exceeds like her next move. I forgot what the ultimate like big goal was, but she does it, comes back and he's crying and he says, I wish you were a man. And she's finally like, okay, what the heck? Like, uh, what could I be do? Like, what could I do right? I, I exceeded what my brother did, all this different stuff. He said, no, I wish you were a man because the opportunities you should have been given because of all that you can do to exceed that. And so I guess my question for you is, was there somebody throughout the course of the military that was hard on you, specifically hard on you for being a woman, but you felt was doing it because they believed in you? Um, that makes sense. That's very long-winded, but... No, that does make sense. Um, one of the things that I would say, so in general, remember how we talked about like Daniela has crazy amounts of drive, um, which really actually comes down to like, I was just obsessed with perfection, um, which can be as much of a sign of depression as anything else. So in college, like I had to be valedictorian. And when I decided to join the army, I was like, I have to be the best physical specimen ever. And so I, you know, would run five minute miles and I would, you know, do more pushups than the men. And I ended up being one of the women that volunteered to be like the first in ground combat. Um, and so I definitely did have one leader who unfortunately was killed. Um, but he was like, yeah, we're going to push like physically, we're going to push you all really hard. But then mentally and emotionally, like you're part of the team. Like once you prove it, you're part of the team. and um we're now going to accept like what you bring to the team as women um which i think was was really important and for the rest of the people i would say like i definitely have several people that were huge mentors um and really sort of pushed me and helped me and then there were people that were just awful to me because i was a woman but with the people that were in my corner it was almost like because like it started because I was this quote unquote in the military world, like badass. 
And then I, so basically I like convinced them up front that they should invest in me and then they invested in me, which is one of the things that, well, I think that was great and it worked out. And the first group of women kind of had, have to do this always, but it also leads to like, you know, women shouldn't have to prove that they are as good as the men. They should be able to prove that they're as good as the women. And when we, when we, act like women have to prove that they're men what we're saying there is that women aren't as good as men you know if you if i have to prove that i'm as good as you then there, that means there's an inherent assumption that i'm not as good as you already yeah that's one of the best ways i've ever heard that described is that it's okay to admit that there's a difference compare what needs to be compared but don't compare them necessarily to each other but set high goals i i, I like that that's good i yeah. And honestly, as I, you know, these days I spend like all of my time studying culture and doing culture work. And I'm like, look, I was at the time that I thought that I, and I was, you know, helping to break barriers for women and do all this stuff. I was also reinforcing the idea that ends up hurting women that we have to be just kind of like less hairy men. You know, we have to be as good as the men instead of just like, like we're women, we're different. We bring completely different things to the table. So let's talk about like how that improves operations. And Love that's that. where, I mean, that's where we're getting to, right? In all of culture and in the military and it's a process. So I'm not like upset that that's the process. I just think the more actively we realize, you know, we're now at the point that women have proved, I think across all cultures that like they can break barriers and they can be just as good as the men. So now let's start seeing, you know, this idea that like wearing pink high heels doesn't take points off your IQ might actually give you a different perspective that's useful yeah. to the, the boardroom. Yep. Yep. I like that. So let's transition from that to all of a sudden the business world happened and uh, you involved in culture and speaking and all these different things. So what, walk me through that. Yeah. So, you know, that's a very interesting process. I got out of the military and I did what almost every other veteran does. And I said, okay, what does my resume say that I do in the civilian world? And since there's not a whole lot of like civilian companies that want to hire you to go find terrorists um, and do sort of the spy work that the side of the intelligence officer, what I was left with was the physical security side, which is the locking doors and the checking people's you know, clearances and processes and essentially the mind-numbingly dull side of what I did in the military. And I went into that and I got a amazing six-figure job at a Fortune 500 company right when I got out, um, hired by another veteran who knew how to sort of like help me and mentor me. And it was just so dull, you know, and I was going through leaving the army, getting married, having a baby, like all of this stuff at the same time. Um, and so I just eventually realized I was not in the right place. And it was literally at a meeting when somebody said to me like, oh, it's nice to hear you speak, Daniela. You're, you're usually so quiet. And I was like, um, okay, I don't think I'm in the right role, right? Where my unique talents and skills are being used. And so I left. Um, combination again kind of leaving the call like kind of kicked out kind of left <laughs> you know I wasn't my best in a role that I didn't care about so they didn't want to renew my contract which I think will did we lose your sound uh, no keep going we're good <laughs> there you Sorry. go which I think will turn out to be you know 
another version of one of the best things that has happened to me. And I started trying to figure out what I really should be when I grew up. And I started really holistically looking at things. And in fact, when I was still a captain in the army, I told one of my mentors my background story. And for the first time, instead of the response being, you know, wow, you're such a strong person, it was, Daniela, do you realize that if you combine all of this experience together, you have a lot of value and insights on sort of culture, organizational behavior, leadership, et cetera. And at the time I had no idea. And I've spent six years now thinking about this and working on this and writing about this and speaking about this. And what it really boils down to is, yeah, for 32 years, I have been studying organizational behavior. I have been involved in cutting my teeth in some of the most intense organizations in the world. And now that I'm able to kind of like step back and look at the similarities and look at the differences and I can see it everywhere, right? I can see like the same reasons that the cult worked are the same reasons why like your awesome family works as a group, right? And some of the downsides are the same reasons you might be experiencing on like your sports team or your child's school or whatever. And um, at the same time, I also heard this uh, really interesting statistic that people that do public speaking make a lot more money across every industry than people that don't. And literally, this is how my brain works. I'm like driving home from my day job and I'm like, okay, what am I an expert on? I need to get on a stage. And I was like, I'm an expert on growing up in a cult and I'm an expert on being a woman and, you know, sort of the only woman in the room. Uh, and those are two things I can start talking about. And people actually told me a lot of really good business advisors were like, Daniela, don't talk about the cult stuff. Like, just talk about this army captain thing that you did, like this, these barriers that you guys broke, like, that's cool. Um, and, you know, it was kind of, I, I don't think it was bad advice. I look at it as it was on me to figure out how all of those things connected into one actual thread to where, you know, so now I have my business and I do writing and speaking and consulting. And it's essentially all about, let me help you expose the culture you have so that you can then strategically and on purpose build the culture that you want. Because you can do all the culture stuff in the world, all the team building stuff in the world. But if you don't understand kind of the group norms and the socialization and what is going on under the surface of your culture, it's, you know, it's not going to work. And that's how you accidentally, I always say you can't spell culture without culture. We pause. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I have to pause that. <laughs> okay, so we paused because, you know, my child and that's how life happens, but we're now back. This is a family-friendly podcast, so we like to encourage children running in and giving cute smiles, so it's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah, so I think we were talking about, you know, what I do today, and one of the things I say all the time is, look, you can't spell culture without cult. And my, my book that I'm working on right now is actually called Uncultured, and it's about exactly that, right? The in this case, it's a personal story, but it's like how like the more and more you understand the effects of socialization and the effects of group behavior and group norm on you, the more you can deliberately like choose to engage or choose to not engage. You know, we all have to be parts of groups because if we don't, we will literally be so lonely that we'll take our own lives um, or just not survive. And there's 
you know, plenty of research and study to that effect. So it's not like you're not going to be a part of a group, but really the answer to the question of, you know, like why do people join cults and stay in cults? It comes down to the same thing that helps us join or keeps us in any group that we're a part of, you know, and come on, we've all met CrossFit cult people. So it's like, it's pretty easy to understand. Absolutely. It makes complete sense. So whether you're a leader of a fortune 500 company, you're a leader of a startup of four people, or you're somebody who's just very lost in life and you're beginning to understand this culture, this concept of culture, what's the first question you should be asking yourself? Yeah. So I think the first question you should be, okay. So first of all, um, do you have a plan? Right. And so I think that from my perspective, everything that a business owner cares about and actually wants to throw weight behind, you have a plan for. Right. So almost never will you ask a successful, successful business owner, you know, do you care about profit? Of course. Can I see your business plan? Right. Like your plan to make profit. And they have one almost always. And if you ask any business leader today, if they care about culture, they will say, of course okay, can I see your culture plan? And then they stare at you like you have spots on your forehead. Um, And so, yeah, the first question I want business leaders to ask is, um, you know, Cheshire Cat philosophy. If you don't know where you're trying to get to, how are you going to get there? Um, And then after that, the sort of the question you need to ask to realize how important it is to build a culture plan And then after that is now going to be a series of questions. And these are going to be the things you always hear about in regards to culture, like your values, your, you know, your values, your tactics, your missions, your purpose, how all of these things blend together. But if you don't have an overall plan, right? Like it doesn't matter what culture initiative you put in, like you could be building something completely off purpose. And that's how people build, you know, sort of like, sometimes evil, but sometimes just organizations that don't function great. It's just because, well, you, you know, it's great that you bought everyone ping pong tables, but how does that fit into the plan for the culture that you're trying to build? Yeah. I like that a lot. What is, um, what's the influence you hope to have? Yeah. Um, I, so first of all, I am of the opinion that we are in the middle of what I call culture wars right now in our country and kind of in the whole world, um, where we are going through some of the most drastic culture change as quickly as possible that potentially the world has ever seen. And if you don't believe me, or if the listeners don't believe me, go back and watch friends the most benign show ever, right, at the time, and you will see how sort of like unacceptable, like it could never be made today, right? This is how much our culture has drastically changed. And I want to be a, you know, thought leader, brand leader in that conversation. So one of my, you know, long-term goals and what I'm trying to build towards, you know, that influences what I do and my organization and the culture of that organization is how can we, you know, be, be thought leaders and be provoking and stimulating these culture questions, (laughs) you know, how can we, how can I drive my side of the culture wars so that it is having a hopefully positive impact and not just, uh, just blowing stuff up for fun. 
Yeah. I think uh, you mentioned that that's your sort of end, you know, ultimate goal end goal. I think you're doing a pretty good job of that now already. So I would keep doing what you're doing. Like, I, I know you have a plan, you've got big goals in that, but I think you're having a pretty, pretty big impact as it is already. So um, my, uh, my favorite question on the planet, and you touched on this a little bit, but what is it ultimately that gets you out of bed in the morning the most? Yeah. Um, culture. <laughs> you know, that's my, I was, uh, I was joking with you about this before we even started recording, but it's kind of built in there for me with the cult and culture, um, how that just plays together. But I, you know, everything I do now, I see it, how, you know, it is so fascinating to me to understand like why we are having these conversations and how, you know, it's almost like once you once you know, you can't unknow, so you start seeing it everywhere. And um, yeah, you know, getting to just like engage in those conversations. And I, you know, on my on my path to figuring out how I'm going to make enough money to do this for the rest of my life, I just get to have the most incredible conversations, people like you, I get to meet all these people. And um you know, one of the things in my very dark decade when I was struggling with suicide and not wanting to get out of bed in the morning was realizing that like people make all the difference, right? Building your own community, building your own group. And I, you know, yeah, there's all the high level, like I want to make an impact in the world and I want to make money, but just like, I just, get excited that I get to get up every day and like write cool stuff and then talk to cool people. That's awesome. That's so good. Well, I want to, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? Um, hmm. I would love if people were interested, you know, um, in a bit more of the story. Um, I've got a website that is www.daniellamestinek.com check out the show notes because that's hard to spell. <laughs> we'll include any, any links in, in, in um, your materials and stuff on the, on the podcast show too. I want to make sure people get a chance to connect with you. Yeah. But on there, you know, on the website. So first of all, there's a link to that article I mentioned, which is kind of like very intense uh, overview of the story. And also, you know, they can drop their email down for updates on the book that, you know, we're in the process now of the book deal and the publishing. And so oh, yeah. <laughs> fall, hopefully fall 2021, you know, it's coming, is, it's coming. The, the timeline is quite a bit longer when you're trying to do the, the big deal publishing, but hopefully it's coming. And so if people want to, you know, go check that out, but also just follow me on Twitter or connect with me on LinkedIn, because I'm always you know, just trying to have fun debates with people and learn from people that are totally different from me. Awesome. And so that's also, I guess, what I should leave the audience with is just like, learn from people that are different from you. And if you can, especially now as we're going into election season, right? If you can suspend your like, how much this person's idea creeps you out and just like engage in the logic of a different idea, it can be, even if you completely don't agree at the end, I'm, ve I'm very, very on one side of the political spectrum, but you know, the more I've actually dug into thinking differently and suspending my creeped out feelings and just getting into like, why do different people think this way? It's, it's been really like a positive experience for me. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. 
yeah, thank you for having me, Matt. This was so fun and I can't wait to share this with everyone.